This is Chapter 61 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We feature a pair of memoirs this week. The first chronicles a young man's experiences and missteps as a lowly White House staffer in the Nixon administration. It was more fun than it sounds. And the second book recounts the imprisonment of an American photographer by Al-Qaeda in Syria and his Hollywood-like escape. When author Don Stinson was 17, he landed a job in the Nixon White House. The rest, as they say, is history. His new book, Downstairs at the White House, chronicles his front row seat to the Watergate years. He tells our Paul Murnane how he got the gig. I sort of, I, I stumbled into a program uh, at the end of my junior year of high school that allowed me to go uh, directly into college. An American university had a program and that put me in Washington in the fall of 1972 uh, at, at uh, that very young age. And, you know, back in those days, you could, uh, you know, kind of put yourself through college and I needed a job. And um, so I went looking for one on Capitol Hill uh, because I was a political science and a history student. And I thought, you know, that would be that would be appropriate. And, you know, I, I got a lot of laughter as people closed doors in my faces. One day I just kind of bumped into a guy uh, at school who happened to have a job uh, working in something called the old executive office building, which I had no idea what that was. And uh, he was going to give up that job because it had nothing to do with his his major and asked me if I'd be interested. And I said, you yeah, know, sure, if it pays, I'm interested. And I went down and I ended up getting hired. And, um, you know, one of the, the sad things about this is that I didn't realize that I actually worked in the White House complex for the first couple of days I was there. Um, and I was, I, I first went to work for an assistant to the president, um, uh, who was a, a phenomenal guy, um, a New Yorker, Peter Flanagan, uh, who had at that time was, had uh, been with Dylan Reed. And he was one of the guys involved, actually kind of a leader in getting America, uh, involved in, with the space shuttle. And he uh, so I had a job where I made copies and, you know, did all of those kind of gopher things. And in fact, this one day when I maybe my second day there, I was sent to clean out an office and I went in and and as I was cleaning out this office for somebody opened up a drawer and saw this stationery that said the White House. And I kind of freaked out. and I went across to uh, one of the assistants and um, and she just kind of looked at me and, and she was a real sweetheart. And she said, Okay, you really don't know where you are, do you? Yeah, it was all. And I didn't realize you, you, that you I was saw there. that, and you said, "I am working at the White House." I, I guess am. it's that building that's across. <laughs> it's that building that's across the street, though, behind the uh, fencing. Yeah, it's amazing because I could look out the window and I could see the West Wing. Somehow, at, at seventeen, that did not register in my head. Yeah, so. you were in the uh, the executive <laughs> office building, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then. I, I don't know. I was there for six or seven months, and and one day I bumped into a guy, literally, mm. physically, um, who was filling up his percolator. Remember the old percolators at the uh, right. water fountain? Right. It's before and Starbucks. Out, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and he he happened to be one of Spiro Agnew's speechwriters, and we got to to know one another. And uh, I had looked at that office before. I thought it was the coolest thing I ever saw because out front there were. There was an American flag and a vice presidential flag and the vice presidential seal was over the door. And whenever um, 
Vice President Agnew was in. There were these big guys with guns out in front of the door. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And so I ended up getting a job in the correspondence section working for Vice President Agnew, where we got some very interesting and very strange kinds of things um, that that uh, that the public sent in. Yeah, you had you had to sort through the mail, the good and the bad. And I think you say in the book, most of it was was good, right? Most of the mail that he got was fan letter kind of stuff. Yeah, it was. And and uh, and so that was nice. And that was punctuated by the really weird stuff. Um, there was a guy who mailed a letter every week and, and it was always about five pages long, right. different. That was entitled Cranberries, America's Silent Hero. <laughs> and he would write this out in hand. And right. then there was a there was a family who, who somewhere in the Midwest who believed that they had been, as they said, cranially wired by the Martians. And they even sent in little hats, uh, little tinfoil hats for everybody to wear. And right. They, and, and, and then then there was there was one that was that was scary that um, actually led to a fascinating experience. Um, because I was the kid and they dumped everything that they didn't, anybody else didn't want on me. There was a garbage bag, a literal, like a grocery bag that had been mailed. I didn't even know you could mail a grocery bag. And, um, and it was, it said Spiro Agnew spelled like A G N O O on it. And so they gave that to me to open cause it was special. And <laughs> I opened it up and inside there had to be hundreds of little, pornographic photos that had been cut out with a pair of electric scissors that were in the bag that, that were broken. And then there were a couple of uh, pieces of cloth in there that looked like they had blood on them. And so that freaked me out completely. And I went down to the vice presidential protective division, the secret service. And I gave that to them thinking that this was some, you know, incredibly really important thing to them. It was just kind of like it was Tuesday. (laughs) And um, no, not anything really special. But while I was there, one of the agents I knew said, Don, I want to introduce you to Mr. Hill. And um, I just kind of went, yeah, hi, nice to meet you, whatever. And the agent called me back over and he said, hey, dummy, don't you realize that's Clint Hill? Clint Hill, uh, for those of us who remember the Kennedy assassination um, well, uh, was the Secret Service agent who threw himself on the back of the limousine while it was speeding towards Parkland Hospital on November 22nd, 1963. Yeah. And I have to say that I, I, I've never met anyone who out-heroed Clint Hill. It yeah. was a, that was a marvelous, incredible experience. And this would be one of several experiences at the White House with the famous. There was an incident in which Frank Sinatra came to the White House. Yeah. Um, you know, people there were back in those days, they were so very nice to the, to the staff. And, and, and we said that the Nixons really, they demanded that, that they wanted all, all of us underlings to be treated very well. And one of the things we got to do was to go over to the East Room when there were state visits uh, and there were performers who were rehearsing. And on this one particular day, uh, Frank Sinatra was there because the Prime Minister of Italy was visiting, and so we all filed into the East Room. And somehow, uh, I ended up—I I was either in the first or second row, but I was very close to Sinatra. And um, when he was finished, and I—I'll I, never forget—he sang "Old Man River," and the floor literally vibrated. It, it, it was an amazing experience. But when, 
he was done, uh, he wanted a glass of water. And as other people are filing out, I noticed this, and I was younger and faster than someone else, other people in his entourage. And I got him a glass of water, and my hand was shaking, and I ended up spilling ice water <laughs> on his sock and soaking it. Um, he was very gracious about it and said, hey, you know, you're a nice kid. Uh, sometime come visit me in Vegas. And I believed him. <laughs> and so I actually went out, you know, to look up airfares so I could hang out with a rat pack. You know, that didn't exactly work out. But <laughs> yeah. And you met Bob Hope and Charlton Heston and your date fainted? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was another um, moment. Uh, yeah. Before, before, uh, uh, one of my uh, college uh, friends and I were able to uh, get some tickets to some inaugural festivities in 73. And um, we, there was this one particular reception and we had dates and we, we, we went to this and we were, you know, scrounging for food and doing all the things that college students do. When my date, who was just this lovely young lady, looked over and she said, oh, my God. There's Bob Hope and Charlton Heston, and my mother and I are their biggest fans. So me being maybe a little brash, <laughs> I said, well, let's go over and meet him. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I, can, I said, okay, I'll go talk to him. So I, I walked over, and I could feel my heart in my, in my throat, and I kind of interrupted. In fact, they were talking about – Hope was talking about the fact that this was probably his last uh, – uh, USO tour that he had just finished in, in Vietnam. And uh, I said, hey, guys, listen, um, I had this, you know, I introduced myself and I said, there are these, uh, there's this uh, date that I have. And she thinks you guys are like the greatest thing on earth. And if you could just like turn around and wave to her or whatever, that would be incredibly wonderful. And they kind of looked at each other and looked at me and said, yeah, we'll come over and talk to her. <laughs> so I came across the room with... Um, Bob Hope and and Charlton Heston and she proceeded to faint <laughs> dead right there in the middle of the inaugural event. Yeah. Exactly, but they were yeah. they were so nice. They they signed everything that that would take ink, and they were just they were very kind. So. Yeah, that, that that was one of obviously several um, lighthearted experiences with the famous, and and, and maybe heart stopping experiences with the famous <laughs> around the White House. Um, but you know, you were there for Watergate, and you were there. You were working for Agnew. Uh, granted, as as a kid in 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 one of the smaller roles. But you were there when Agnew uh, copped his plea, uh, no contest to the tax uh, case, and he right. resigned. And you actually right. got invited to, was it was it Agnew's house? And you're sitting there at his feet drinking a beer and he's talking to everybody? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was about a month after he had resigned, and uh, it was his birthday. And they, the Agnews decided to have a sort of a farewell party for uh, all the staff. And... Um, I, I, I was a hanger on, um, after most folks had left and all, all of a sudden I ended up finding myself sitting on the floor, drinking beer next to a guy who was Bob Hope's nephew, uh, who was talking about the fact that he and Sinatra actually had just sold a house that they, they had owned in, in DC, which was a, now had become a surrealistic experience and that all of this now had started to come full circle with these people. And I'm sitting across from the former vice president who, who made a, a statement that was also surreal for somebody who was all of 18 at that time. And, uh, and that was that he never wanted to be president. And, really? um, he, um, it, it, you know, and, 
you know, a lot of people have written a lot of things that, that uh, have not been nice about him, and, and many of those things are indeed warranted. I think it's, it's different. You know, I had a, a different view of him um, and of President Nixon, um, yeah. probably because I was around them. It, you know, kind of like when you know people, it has a different it does it has a different Im- impact on you were you thinking um through the worst of it that it would end as it did with the with the uh, the resignation of the president did, did or were you so busy in the day in and day out that you didn't really think about the big picture you know the the well what i did like most everyone else was listen to the rumors that were floating through the hallways um, the, the White House, at least at that time, I, I have a feeling it's probably no different today, uh, is like any other office. Um, and, you know, people, uh, they, 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 they chat about things and they, they spread rumors and, and such. And you could, you could tell that, I mean, towards the end, um, right the last week, you could cut the tension in the place with a knife and, um, the looks on people's faces, many of whom had given their, I mean, they had devoted their professional lives to Richard Nixon. It, it was very sad, but you could tell that something was going to happen. And then everything started to build and went faster and faster and faster until until he got down to uh, making his resignation speech, um, which uh, and, and I helped to take the I happened to be uh, another Forrest Gump moment. I happened to be passing by uh, the Oval Office uh, late that afternoon and uh, uh, that Nixon spoke to the nation, and I, I, I helped my friends take the furniture out of the Oval Office, a lot of the furniture, because they, the size of the TV cameras back in those days were so big. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of things that were just kind of surreal. And you helped, um, you said, bring the press releases around. Back in the day, you jumped in a White House vehicle and you brought the press releases over to the news agencies uh, to say, yeah, the president's going to be making this speech, so... I mean, you were a part of history. I mean, uh, when you look back on it now, uh, do you see the 17-year-old kid kind of trying to find his way, or do you, do you see yourself as being kind of a part of history? You know, I, I, uh, I, if, I, if I'm a part of history, I am a, um, a, a speck of dust. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was a 17, 17 18, 19-year-old kid who... Um, I, I did a lot of the stupid kinds of things that teenagers do. I was attuned to what was going on, um, but I, I, I don't think I ever saw myself as as a part of it. I thought I thought of myself as uh, being in a heck of an interesting place to be an observer. Yeah, I, th- I think hist- uh, I think history is only obvious, uh, you know, sometime after the fact, after it's all happened and the dust settles, you can look back and say, yeah. but at the time you kind of were, were just watching. But I mean, you did, I mean, you were standing there when you saw Gold- the, the famous meeting that Nixon had with Goldwater and the other Republicans in which they said, yep. listen, you have to, you were standing there, you saw Goldwater walking towards the Oval Office. Yeah, and I, and I had gotten to know, um, oddly enough, because I had a at one point, I during the summer of '73, actually when I was working for the assistant to the president, I I was sent to Capitol Hill to the Senate, to Republican offices um, in the Senate, at, at least once, if not multiple times, every day with envelopes that uh, I didn't know what was in them, and I certainly wasn't going to open them to find out. Uh, but this is while the Watergate hearings were going on, and there was this kind of mysterious person who would come and get me and give me this thing, and I would take him up to Capitol Hill. And I ended up getting to know 
sort of Senator Goldwater and also um, Hugh Scott, who was the uh, minority leader of the Senate, basically because I <laughs> I snuck onto a senator's only elevator one day. Uh, and they busted me and they remembered me because um, uh, I, I would see them from time to time. And that day they uh, they, they, they they said hi uh, as they were leaving yeah. with uh, very gray kind of complexions after telling the president that that it was over. He needed to resign. Um, one final question I wanted to ask you, because I know that the time is growing short. Um, I did want to ask you about the Sammy hug. Um, I know that that happened. I, I tweeted a, a picture of the Sammy Davis Jr. hugging Richard Nixon, which is one of the enduring images of those years, I hate to say. But that happened, I, I read, in 72, and you didn't arrive till 73. Right. Um, I missed that one. Uh, but, you know, I, I did have uh, I did have a lot of other experiences and, and saw a lot of other things. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, what I can say is that I, what I've tried to do with the book is I tried to put in things that were very poignant. Um, that had some very interesting connections in, in history and other things that were f- funny and some other things that were just weird, including uh, the, uh, the the chefs were very nice to me. And as a starving high school or a college student, uh, they used to feed me leftovers <laughs> very often. <laughs> you go home with White House food back to your dormitory at uh, American University. That's exactly right. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you ever wonder what it's like to... Um or, or if it is really even possible for a person um, as young and in the same experience as you uh, to be in the White House today. I wonder what that experience is like for one person, uh, a young person right now working for the Trump White House. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't even know if there are jobs like the ones that I had. Uh, I mean, at, at the end, um, even at the end of the Ford administration, I had a job as a messenger in the East Wing, uh, which kind of gave me the run of the place. Um, at least on the first floor. And I'm not even sure with email and everything else, I even have those jobs anymore. Uh, I do know one thing I, I was before I was old or right about the time I was able, uh, old enough to vote at 18, I had a top secret security clearance, uh, which was an oddity in itself. I, I don't know what, uh, and they've had some issues with that. Um, I, I don't know, but I would say that I would feel for someone in that position. Who's a government employee, not a political appointee who, uh, is watching all of that go along. Perhaps they will have a similar book one day. Did you um, did you keep a diary? Did you just take notes? Was this um, kind of off the top of your head? I as as uh, as dumb as I was, I, I did. I was smart enough to keep some notes. Yeah. Uh, about some of the bigger events and photographs and some other things, which helped me to put all this together. Uh, would um, you would you would you recommend uh, employment at the White House for for a young person? Boy, I would. I'll, I'll tell you the. You, you you get a chance to see things that uh, in terms uh, learning how things operate, how people think the exposure um, that I had to people with incredible minds who were also willing to share some of that with me uh, from time to time. And it, it you know, it's an experience like like none other. And I, I would indeed highly recommend it. Don Stinson is the guy at a party when people are talking about politics and uh, the American system of government. Uh, they'll listen when he says, well, I got a story to tell. <laughs> <laughs> Downstairs at the White House, yep. it's from Eastern Harbor Press. And I, our thanks to Don Stinson. Thank you so much. What would you do to survive a terrorist prison? 
Would you lie about who you are and what you believe in just to stay alive? Well, that's exactly what Matthew Schreier did. He recounts his seven-month captivity in a Syrian jail in his memoir, The Dawn Prayer, or How to Survive in a Secret Syrian Terrorist Prison. And yes, that's a Dr. Strange love reference. He tells us how he ended up a prisoner. I went there to shoot the war. Uh, I was there a month before shooting the refugees, doing photography, obviously. And I was there for 18 days inside and around Aleppo. And when I had the photographs I wanted, I decided to leave. And when I was 45 minutes from the Turkish border, that's when they got me. Your book, as expected, has been described as gripping and raw, but also funny. So how could you possibly have found humor in being taken prisoner by Al-Qaeda? Well, when you break it down, it's kind of a layered story. I'm basically a American Jew of Russian descent who tricked them into thinking he was a German-American Christian who then tricked them into thinking he was a Sunni Muslim and pulled it off for seven months. If you can't find humor in that, then... <laughs> How did you possibly do person. that? <laughs> I, I, I had to. <laughs> it was Either I do that or I die. So, uh, you know, the, one of the first questions they ask you when they interrogate you is, what religion are you? What are your parents? So I told them what they expected to hear and what they wanted to hear. And what got you through all that time, you know, being uh, starved and tortured and everything else they put you through? Uh, just staying positive. Cause, you know, I just didn't let myself think of getting killed. I figured the only thing almost as bad as getting your head cut off is sitting around waiting for it to happen. So I made the decision not to do that and use my time to my advantage. Think of a way to get out of there, for example. And you obviously did get out of there because you're sitting here talking to us. How did you manage that? Well, I don't want to give away the ending, but obviously I escaped. So uh, the window was flawed in the cell. And if you, I tried pulling it off, I tried prying it off, but I couldn't do it. So I studied it and realized that I could take it apart like a puzzle. And that's what I did. Well, you did have a lot of time on your hands, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people think it's just you're sitting there terrified all day long, but, you know, mostly you're just bored. <laughs> what got you through then to get over that boredom? And, and I've also heard that in cases like this, trying to find hope plays a large part in it as well. Of course, hope and faith play a huge role. Um, for a month and a half, I was with Syrian soldiers from, from the army, and they were like, they became like my family. They were really the greatest bunch of guys I ever met. They didn't hold anything against me in regards to being an American or working with the Free Syrian Army, who I was photographing and is their enemy. So that month and a half was, you know, probably the best time that I spent over there because I had like people with me who understood com camaraderie and loyalty. And, you know, the other times I just, uh, you know, watched movies in my head, um, exercised as much as possible if I was being fed, things like that. What sticks with you most from your entire ordeal? Most is uh, the fact that the worst part of the ordeal was not being with Al-Qaeda. It was being locked in a room with Theo Curtis, who was the other American I was with, because he was basically a traitor. And uh, he got away with it. The New York Times knew about it. They let him write an article lying about everything. Um, he worked with Al-Qaeda against me. He admits that he knocked on the door to rat me out for an escape that he claims we planned together. Uh, he, he just did the most horrible things. And, you know, he was so bad that I couldn't even tell my own cellmate that I was Jewish because I knew he would tell on me. 
It's interesting that you bring that up because when you mentioned earlier about having camaraderie and and talking with the Syrian soldiers, I I wondered if that was something dangerous to do because do you know who your friends are in a situation like that? Instinct tells you who your friends are. Like like Theo was he was allied with the Al Qaeda prisoner who was a Moroccan jihadi, one of their own, and he was like that guy's property, and he would do whatever that guy told him to do, and because that guy was my enemy, Theo was with him. And, you know, the Syrian soldiers don't like Al-Qaeda. That's their enemy. So he was their enemy. And since Theo was his sidekick, they didn't really like him too much. So, you know, that, that probably played, played a role in it because it has to do with character. You know what I mean? And, and it doesn't matter what army you serve. All soldiers have the same, you know, values, patriotism, loyalty, and, you know, I, they saw me that I was proud to be an American and they respected that. And that, that's one of the things that I think really helped us bond. So what are you up to now? Now I am writing a second book. I am doing a lot of speaking engagement with, with the military. That's like my passion in life. I love using my experience to give perspective to our soldiers in case, God forbid, any of them ever get captured. I have some other projects that I'm in talks with that I don't want to discuss before anything's on paper. and. You know, I'm keeping busy. And I imagine you're persona non grata in that part of the world at this point. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And that's where we'll close the book on this week's podcast. Next time around, a book that gets to the bottom of the biggest natural history crime of the century. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books and feel free to reach out and email me at lisat at wcbs880.com. That's L-I-S-A-T at wcbs880.com.